Hello and welcome back to part two of this latest episode in the Chamber Chatter podcast series from Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce. We're looking at issues and asking questions around management or leadership with our special guests, uh, Chamber CEO Clive Mehmet OBE and Chair of Sage Green Consulting, uh, Graham Wiley. In episode one, or part one, we discussed the differences between management and leadership, the impact various current crises are having on business leaders, having to manage staff against an ever-increasing backdrop of huge challenges. We looked at new working models uh, and also how to make misery optional, which is uh, a great discussion we had around the issues of stress in the workplace and also some practical uh, bits around that as well. In part two, we're going to be looking at skills, at coaching, a bit on diversity. We may come back to that mental fitness bit as well, because I do think that is, is quite an important issue. Uh, at, at present a lot of managers are scratching their heads a little bit over and just wondering what this looks like in, uh, in in the modern workplace with all the changes going on before we get back to that I want to take it down to sort of a bit sort of brass tacks really uh, and we hear a lot from businesses around uh, a lack of skills you know I can't get the right people with the right skills and all this that and the other I always, and I'm, I'm open to um, to uh, a challenge on this from, from both of you, but I always think effective managers always have a feel for employee skill sets. You know, how far you can push somebody, what they're going to do, what they're not going to do, et cetera, et cetera. I may be wrong on that, but uh, we yeah. can have a discussion about that. If you're in that position, how do you go about discussing that with employees in a constructive way? Because I think that's quite important because we hear, like I said, we hear a lot, don't we, about skill shortages and things like that. Sometimes the people have got those skills within them, but the manager doesn't quite recognise it, doesn't quite bring them out of, of that person. How, 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 how does that fit with what your experiences are? That's a, that's a, that's a huge, huge question you've covered there. Oh, let's try and, let's try and break this down, Graham, man. Get the conversation rolling. I mean, one is um, people tend to again. It was a bit like in part one. You know, sometimes managers are reluctant to talk about things with their employee. You know, put people in positions of secret or uh, authority. Sorry, I was someone else. Don't want to sit down. There. And you know, the whole discussion around what do you want from your job, your career, and the skills you need to do that are pivotal in that discussion. And a lot of, uh, I've got to say, a lot of developed appraisal systems tend to be very forensic as opposed to having bigger conversations about what you want to become, what you want, what you want to give to an organisation. And you've got to remember that most people often feel that when organisations are going through rapid change, you know, their natural feeling is the trains leaving the station without me. You know, you want something else. I'm not sure I can give that to you. And I say, well, I can you know, see that confidence. I can see that potential in you. Let's see if we give you the confidence and the development. You know, we can get to that place as well. So I think it, 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 people are incredibly um, narrow-minded in how they look at skills because skills are often transferable. You know, and you often hear around this narrative of what people want, but actually you want attitude ability. Yes, sometimes jobs are very particularly technical. You need that set of technical skills. You're still needed to be underpinned by something that actually fits with the overriding culture in an organisation, what you want and how you want people to behave. And my last comment on that would be, you know, remember, 
There's a massive difference between an employer who wants a certain skill and character type at a certain price and a genuine skill shortage. And there is, there's nothing confuses people more than that. I think that's a really good point for me to kick off, really. Um, when, when you're recruiting people in this market, you're not going to get, as an employer, very spoiled for choice unless you're very lucky, which means you're going to get somebody who's going to come with not all of the tools in the toolkit that you need them to have. Well, if you don't commit to them and... and put in place the action that's required to give them the tools and you can't really expect much to change <laughs> and equally if you say i need this this is the skills that i require and without that i'm not going to employ anybody well you're going to have a lot of vacancies to fill so the point is you're going to have to be flexible more than ever in the past and you're going to have to be committed to their personal development in a way that you probably would have chosen not to be given that choice. So that's the, the start of, if you like, the journey for people. I think there are then, once people are in place and they've been around for a while and the organization continues to evolve and develop, I think today's modern workforce needs and wants development. They want experiences, they want to be able to do new things, they want to stay capable and they want to stay relevant. To, particularly to their own organization, but obviously to the wider job market. And that's in as an employer, that's in your interests. It's not, it's not a threat. That is in your interests. And so by having clarity about where you want to take the organization and therefore the skills that and, and attributes that you need to develop among the players within your organization, you can plot a path where you both go on that journey. And it can be rapidly changing. It doesn't have to be the next five years we're doing this year through an apprenticeship scheme and then this and then that. It can be something that's very bite-sized and you just keep doing it. And Clive, you mentioned something that was really interesting about appraisal systems. You know, the annual appraisal, the quarterly appraisal, I mean, it's got to be redundant, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's just pointless. Now, we believe in something to do with short interval control appraisal. So four to six weeks, you have a formal sit down with the guys individually on a one to one but a structured conversation, giving them feedback about how they're doing, them giving you feedback about how they're feeling and being managed and referring exclusively to, to the goals, both the, the medium and long term and the here and now. You know, the here and now might be we need to get some more sales. What we're doing, what we're doing that's different today that we did yesterday. It might be in the long term, we've got to open up a new market. What are we doing? What are you doing? How am I helping you to get into that new market? And so on and so on and so on. And by doing that in a very two-way, open, but focused and sincere way on a four to six week cycle, you not only demonstrate to them your commitment to their development and involving them in, in the way the organization is evolving, they're also saying to you, I've got these skills, you don't use these. I could do that, 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 or that. And, and perhaps even more exciting, I don't know how to do this, but I'd like to have a go. I don't know quite what that means, but I'm quite happy to have a bit of deep end training. Drop me in it, I'll see how far I get. And you know, this is back to the don't hire on skill, hire on attitude piece. If you get the right people with the right frame of mind, 
you'll, you'll muddle your way through one way or another. And so I think training is critical now more than it's ever been because of the, of the genuine lack of people out there that can do stuff. And the fast moving nature of, of the, the situations that we're in put pressure on giving people in your team the ability to do the things you want them to do and they need to do. So that's my particular take on how training should be within the current workplace, the current work environment. And that's not limited to professional services office work. That's totally true of any kind of operation, any kind of skill set. I think, I think, I think just to that, Chris, you know, the, the, the trick is always to attitude and potential. And that will tend to, if you if you constantly say so, attitude and potential, the key criteria in, in recruitment, that will actually help people deal with their own inbuilt prejudices then of who they want to hire to do a particular piece of work. Because attitude and potential are age blind, gender blind, uh, any minority categorizations blind, and that's what we, that's how we have to change the, the exacts of recruitment and development as well. Yeah, if you've got a willing horse, you're going to get a whole more out of that horse, aren't you? You know, and that's that becomes a two way street. You know, the more you develop them, the more they appreciate it, the more committed to your business they are, the more you get out of them, etc., etc., etc. I love the unreconstructed, unreconstructed part of you, Graham. Will really they Come on. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, it's better than flogging a dead one, isn't it, really? <laughs> Uh, it leads on to something else on. which i think is really important around management and and it's this it's the skill of delegation yeah. and if management as defined is is the organization the resources to produce outputs as a manager you're responsible for getting it done but you don't actually do all that much doing do you so you don't you've got to delegate well the skills of delegation are making absolutely sure the people know what you want done when you want it done, and to what standard you want it done. And if necessary, what resources they can use in the process. But if you're not clear because you don't know or you're trying to dodge the issue, well, don't be surprised if you don't get exactly what you wanted in the first place. That ability to delegate with clarity and the ability to check in and making sure things are going and going and going is right but there's another dynamic to delegation particularly around attitude now we're three pretty senior people we've had successful careers we've been lucky what we mean is people saw opportunity they saw our talent and they gave us a chance otherwise known as delegated a load of extra work to us so that we could show them how clever we were and the point about this is if, if as a manager, you don't delegate and take people out of their comfort zone, you'll never know what they're capable of. And it's not fair. Why are you depriving them of that opportunity? And it's not about stress or pressure or overwork or any of those things. It's about taking people and saying, will you have a go at this for me? This is what I'm looking for. This is where I, what I want done. This is what I want it done by, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And until you've actually pushed and pushed and pushed and delegated, you don't know what people are capable of. And you know, 99 times out of 100, it's going to be much more than you gave them credit for. 
before. Graham, I want you now then to give advice to the beleaguered business owner out there, and I'll characterize it relatively small business, and they listen to people like us saying, you know, your job is to conduct the orchestra, not play the bloody instruments and there. And they just turn around to you and say, they'll often say two things, I, 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 but I have to do all that myself, I have to do that myself, I've got no way to do that. Or they'll say, I don't know how to do that. And how do you advise those people to take that thought process forward? Um, this becomes a big issue in a small business, this. Mm. Because if you're not careful, as the leader of the business owner, you become the business limiter. It can only go as fast or as big as you let it. Now, if that's a conscious decision, I don't want it to be like this, then that's fine. But if you don't have that limiter, if you do truly want to build something and keep building it, at some point, you've got to trust other people to do stuff. Either stuff that you can do or stuff that you can't do. And if you don't push it down, if you don't delegate it, it isn't going to get done and you aren't going to get any bigger. And you can take that into all sorts of ext extensions into, well, you've got to hire people. You've got to hire particularly skilled salespeople. You've got to hire an accountant. You've got to hire a technical specialist. Whatever. As you get bigger and bigger and bigger, that's an inevitable and obvious fact. When you're a small business, you're normally caught between the can I afford it or can't I afford it? And often, as you're building a small business from a startup, there's a point where you're going to be financially worse off the moment you hire the next hire. And you've got to prepare to make that investment if you truly believe in what you're doing and you're truly committed to growing the business that you set out to in the first place. And it's usually, to be blunt, the first real test of, are you serious about this? And it's, it's not... You know, simple statements around um, this particular piece are, are unhelpful, I think. It boils down to simple common sense. If you want to grow a business, you're going to do it by employing people. And if you're going to do it by employing people, there's going to be a point where you've got to go out there and do exactly that, employ them. And then you've got to give them the skills, and then you've got to give the delegation, and you've got to manage the process, and you've got to become a manager as well as a leader. And if you say, no, I'm always going to be the one that does all this and micromanages everything, well, that would be the way that it'll be then, won't it? Forever. And it's also, Graham, isn't it? It's feeling of people, because I'm still never surprised by the amount of people that say, right, I see what you're saying, Clyman, we need to do that, I must do that. And they say, what's the matter? And then what they're really saying to you is, but then what do I do? <laughs> Because, as you know, you know, it's the adrenaline of management and business ownership and whatever is often addicted to firefighting, isn't it? And dealing, you know, I mean, I've got to deal with that, deal with that, deal with that, and often turns away from the longer term, you know, strategic planning of the business. And by the way, you made it, the important points you just made. I'd also say to people listening to this, you remember when you made those investments, when it eventually comes to the full cycle, and you want to sell that business at the end of that cycle, you'll get a lot more money with the management structure in place than if you haven't a lot more money. This, this is, I think this is ultimately what it boils down to. You know, what are you doing? Are you building a business or are you occupying yourself? What, what, is it a job that provides an income or are you building a business that you're going to do something with? And if you can answer either of those two questions, you'll know 
what you're going to do in terms of delegation. Now, if you if you run a business, let's say it's a physiotherapy business, and you are a hands-on physiotherapist, and that's what you really love doing, well, it is what it is. It's your way of earning an income. If you want to own a chain of 200 physiotherapist clinics, then it ain't going to work if you do all the therapy, is it? So you've got you've got to see very clearly what it is you as the business owner, business leader, want. And then the rest of it will just cascade down from it. But if you cling to stuff, then unfortunately you'll slow the whole place down. If that's not what you want. Wise words indeed. That was absolutely fascinating there. And, and so many absolute nuggets of, of information and intelligence there. Um, I should imagine everybody listening to this will probably be rewinding the last five minutes or so just to, to get all that back in again. And uh, absolutely brilliant. I just want to touch a little bit. We mentioned uh, about skills and one thing or another. Is there still a role for coaching in the management toolkit for people? Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think that the issue for me as a qualified coach and mentor, as I think there is a very important distinction that is pretty crucial in people's understanding Men mentoring is where an older person or a more skilled person talks to a younger or less skilled person and says i've done this before this is my experience this is what i learned it's an artist formerly known as training right mentoring is training and it's not coaching Coaching is a skill whereby you help someone work out what their problem is and how they're going to fix it. You don't pretend to have the answers. You've got the toolkit that helps them work it out for themselves. And the value of that is the energy comes from them. The direction of travel comes from them. The, the, the desire to do this and better themselves or achieve things are entirely personal, it's entirely their own. Now, hopefully in a work setting, that's aligned entirely with what their employer wants. Presumably they might well be paying for this program, but it's really important that the difference is understood. Now, coaching will accelerate personal development. Of that, there is absolutely no doubt. Anybody who enters into a coaching program does so with a desire to, to be better, do more, achieve things and the coach is, is exactly there as a catalyst to create that to happen so that's common let me just um i'd slight disagreement there I, I think the um what you say is right one of the problems with the coaching industry is it's often beset with extremely mediocre coaches and it's finding the right coach and it's that Fit, you know, it's it's the fit of that thinking about it. And, and I broadly agree with the definition. Coaching is about you know getting a, a skills deficit deficits floor or sorted out. Mentoring is as well described by Graham. But again, people tend to get very tied up in that separation. There, I've got a lot of experience in non-executive work and uh, a, 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 a different size of companies, different sectors, know a lot about it. And what I would say is, you know, that's where for a lot of small companies, you know, get that non-executive skill set, you know, onto, onto your board table, around your management table, around your 
dinner table, but just get that different way of thinking in. Get someone that's uh, an established figure in your industry or someone that's out of your industry because you need something completely different, you need completely different thinking. And the, the underutilization of that uh, in this country among smaller business is still absolutely staggering. You can get the most incredibly skilled, experienced people for not a lot of money because they want to actually put something back in. And but you're not buying them for you know 40 hours a week. You're buying them for a few hours a week or a month. Why, why do you think that is, Clive? Pardon? Why do you think that is? Why 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 do you think it's it's so underutilized in smaller businesses? I just think because uh, I think actually like the training industry and coaching industry and skills in, in entry, it doesn't fit with what those paradigms are of what it looks like. Was. And again, it's, the, it's actually the fact that it's, uh, Graham's very good at this and he understands it, that again, it, it, I, I get it. it, it's how you fit the right person to the right task. Because it can be destructive. You send the wrong person with the wrong attitude into a small company that might be nervous about using that same non-executive director skill, it can be very destructive. And, you know, then who's going to moderate the, the outcome of that conversation as well? So it's things like that that, that fascinate me, but we, it's just the way that we work with it. We, we tend not to do that. And we, oh, we go on to, oh, I'll go and listen to this, um, I'll pay a few quid and listen to this great manager talking. As opposed to thinking, who in my industry would I be interested in working with? Or as I said, from a completely different industry, because I need to, I want to understand that better. These are, that's the way you really accelerate the depth and diversity of thinking, both within yourself and within the organisation. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? And the, the role of a non-exec director, particularly in a privately owned or an SME, is, is weird. I've probably had 12 or 13 non-exec roles. I've got five at the moment. Some I've had for a long time, some are quite new. There isn't a single replication at all. They're all different. I'm there for a different set of reasons. I provide a different kind of input. And I think the answer to your question, Chris, as to why, why don't people use non-execs more often, I think it's fear. I'm the boss around here. This is my business. I don't need anybody telling me what to do. Or there's going to be someone else in the boardroom usurping my authority. Or they might actually challenge me on things I'm going to find really, really difficult. I think it's the last one, Graham. A lot, don't you? <laughs> yeah. well, it's been, they might come and then there's might... a final one. And I've got <laughs> what? Another over it? Really? And and I, I think you've got all those things going on. Yeah. And yet, when I do find myself invited to be involved in a non-exec capacity, I know I'm on a, onto a winner because the people that say come and help want help. Now, they might not know exactly what help they do need, but once you start helping, they value it immensely. And Clive's point is really, really right. No, we, we run a consultancy business. This is cheap consultancy. They get a whole heap of skill for a very, very, very small field salary. And, and, a really, really good non-exec isn't there for the board meeting. He or she are there whenever they're needed, the phone, the email, the emergency meeting, the whatever. And not just to the owner and the chief exec, to all of the senior people that just need someone to talk to. And you become part of it, and yet at the same time on the outside. 
able to be objective, able to, to see the wood for the trees or ask the dumb question that isn't really so dumb. So I think that's my experience of it, Clive, which is, is really good value for money. The people that embrace it tend to be really, really good at getting the most out of it. People that don't embrace it have got some kind of reset judgment thing that just means yeah. that they're, they're missing out. I think, again, I suppose, Graham, as well, we'd also say that's to Chris's question is, what you know, why don't people embrace whether it's non-execs, mentoring or coaching is, particularly in the non-executive area, it's a bit lazy as well. You know, you've got to, get, you've got to think outside the box. Who, who can I get? Who can I get to come in? What do I want? I think, and sometimes those just go, you know, just get stuck in glue and, you know, I'll have to go to a recruitment consultant to do that. Most recruitment consultants, I assure you, are useless in non-executive recruitment. Yeah, one of the things that I try to explain to people is you don't have to have one non-exec, you can have as many as you like, because there's no such thing as a Swiss Army knife non-exec. You get a non-exec <laughs> and he or she can do what they can do, which won't be everything. <laughs> so you might get one that's really good at sales and marketing and get another one that's really good at finance. Why do you have to limit what you're doing? Why do you, you think you're going to get this one size fits all genius who's going to suddenly appear and know all the answers to every single question? It's just ridiculous, isn't it? So for me, the point is do exactly what Clive said, which is what do I need? What how's that going to help? And what kind of person is that going to look like? And it might look like more than one. And again, to close this down, uh, a bit of it represents, but I would say, it's a great, you've alluded to it, Graham, a lot of the conversations you have with non-executive directors, particularly with the, I suppose it's not more size-wise, but they're often deeply personal conversations as well, where people just need that support and help or dealing with really difficult circumstances or dealing with a really difficult long-standing issue. Now, you're not there to give them HR support, but you're there to give the guidance on how you set about sorting that out. Yeah, sometimes all you're doing is giving reassurance, Clive, where you're saying, yeah, you're doing the right thing. I know it's hard, but you're doing the right thing. It's like, it is, you know, these, I hate those truisms, but it is lonely. These, these positions are by their nature quite lonely. Okay, just one, uh, one, one final topic to, uh, to 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 finish on, really. And we've we've done a lot about and uh, uh, good things and, and things to encourage people, and one thing or another. It's a workplace; you are inevitably going to get conflict, whether that's between employees, with an employee, or whatever it may well be. What are your tips, or the way that you go about constructively managing? conflict in the workplace because if there's anything more destructive than conflict going on between workers it, it's i've yet to see it really to be quite honest and some experiences i've had in, in other parts of my career it's absolutely horrendous and it's not just the people involved it's everyone else gets sucked into that sort of situation as well what 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 would you say to anyone listening about the the way to constructively manage conflict in the workplace Think of your fright, I suppose, I can't remember whether it was part one or not, but you know, <laughs> of this, don't be frightened of the discussion. And again, we, uh, we tend to the rise of think, thinking the wrong things about mitigating risk and risk management. 
and the use of a rigid HR procedure when it's all about early intervention and constructive conversations. And you'll soon know, you'll soon know if that's going to go nowhere, won't you? I mean, that's my view. And they, they lack half of these problems completely. Positive, early, constructive in, interventions will nine times out of ten solve the problem. I, I 100% agree with that. Um, I, I think I've got two other spins on it. I, mean, I, I have seen managers who foster conflict, the divide and conquer manager. All the time they're picking on each other, they're leaving me alone. Right? And that's ridiculous. But nonetheless, I've seen it. I think the, the, the more positive spin I've put on this, and I think this is really actually quite important, I, I think conflict is incredibly valuable to an organisation because if you use a different set of words, differences of opinion, that's where creativity comes from. It's where problem solving comes from. If you can get people to express different views, if you can people get people to be confident enough, encouraged enough, dare I say it, empowered enough, to say, I don't agree, Gov, I think this is what we should do. Yep. And that is received as well as it can be received in a positive way, in a grateful way, you'll get a better outcome. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be differences of opinion. That doesn't mean you're all going to say, oh, that's all oh, lovely. At some point, someone's going to say, I don't agree, and we're going to do this. Right? So I'm not trying to create some kind of utopian dream that doesn't really exist. Where you've got a situation of, of diametric opposition, where you've got a situation where people are at loggerheads, then what you really need to foster, either as the manager or as one of those individuals, is empathy. Because not everything that other person says is wrong. Not everything that other person believes is a load of nonsense. There'll be a nugget in there. I don't know what the 10% of it is. There'll be a nugget in there of what they're saying is right or is valuable or is worthy of consideration. And if you can empathetically reach out and find that 10%, you've got somewhere to build from. Now, again, you might never be best buddies. You might never really want to work together again, but nonetheless, the conflict has been turned into something that produced a productive outcome. And so conflict is, is I believe, an integral part of an effective business managed productively. But it can be, and I have unfortunately seen it managed very menacingly and very negatively. Okay. Yeah, I could agree more. And I, I think um, if you if you paint that picture that, that you've just said, you know, think of the uh, think of the person that's you know the person that you really don't look forward to working with, or you don't look forward to the next meeting with, and you really get yourself wound up for it, and just say, well. No matter how much I really, I'm never going to agree with them, but probably five or ten percent of what they say will have truth, will have an element of truth in it. And that will help you to start thinking differently about how you have that conversation, that relationship with that human being. And that's really important. I think there is a difference between conflict resolution and dynamic tension within business, which is really you must foster. You know, and that is absolutely down to losing managers there. That openness and diversity of thought there. And that, and again, you know, that and that's also making sure that the people in the organization actually are not all, you know, cued from the same piece of timber that we do encourage diversity of people and thinking within our organizations as well. Excellent stuff. Graham, Clive, thank you so much uh, for that. Again, we've covered 
such a wide range of issues there. And again, uh, hopefully anybody listening to this will have picked up at least one little nugget of information or one thought-provoking piece of commentary and all that and thought, yeah, that's what I need to do. Or at least, yeah, I understand that an awful lot better now. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, Graham Wiley, Chair of uh, Sage Green Consulting. Clive Mamet, OBE, the Chief Executive of Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce. I've been Chris Fletcher, and this has been Chamber Chatter, looking at management or leadership. Thank you so much for listening and hope to speak to you all again very, very soon. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Terrific.